Our New Testament reading is from Paul's epistle to the, to the Romans, chapter 5, and I'll read verses 12 through 21. In Romans 5, Paul is teaching about a connection between Adam, the first man, and all of humanity. And he contrasts that between the connection between Jesus Christ and all who are in him. So I begin to read in verse 12 of Romans 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sin. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Please turn now to Genesis 3. I'll read the entire chapter, and the text is verse 7 through 24. Hear the word of God in Genesis 3 at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. The text starts here. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. 
And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open so you can follow along. It was unlike anything they had ever known or experienced before. Thoughts and emotions previously unknown to them rose in their minds and hearts. Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, and everything had changed. Not for the better, but for the worse. They traveled down a path to sin, and they arrived at that horrible destination. They had sinned. Eve had been deceived. She believed the devil who was speaking through the serpent. She took of the forbidden fruit, and she ate. Adam wasn't deceived. When Eve gave the fruit to Adam, he took it, and he ate it, and he knew what he was doing. And this is the moment after that pivotal and dreadful action in human history. Skeptical critics of the Bible might say that there's a contradiction between the threat that God made and what happened to Adam and Eve. Back in Genesis 2:17, God had said that in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve's bodies didn't die that moment or on the day in which they ate the forbidden fruit. 
In fact, Adam lived 930 years in total. Yet, Genesis 3 gives many forms of evidence that Adam surely died when he sinned. His soul died. His relationship with God was radically changed. His marriage greatly suffered. And the rest of his physical life was profoundly different as a result of that first moment of sin. Genesis 3 tells us how sin came into the world. And just as in our last time in this passage, we traced the path to sin, and that was meant to help us to identify temptation, to be on our guard. So in this time together, in God's Word, we'll be looking at the impact of sin and Our consideration of the consequences of sin are meant to stir up hatred in your hearts for the sinful nature and the remnants of it that each of us carries around with us. You need to know that your sinful nature still masters you and dominates your life if you are not yet a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is meant to give God's people ammunition with which to fight against sin. Since sin is the kind of thing that ruins lives and devastates creation, it's never worth it to sin. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. Adam and Eve could see before, but these words are meant to tell us that they now saw themselves and the world and God in a new way as a result of their sin. In terms of their bodies, their Experience of nakedness was a dreadful new reality for them. Before they had been naked and they had nothing to be ashamed of, they had nothing to hide in any way. But now they had sinned. They were guilty. And it seems there was a connection going on between what was happening in their consciences and their awareness that now they were physically naked. Though there was a spiritual cause for the physical symptom of nakedness, Adam and Eve were the first in a long line of people who tried to deal with their symptoms instead of its cause. Boys and girls, here's a question for you to answer in your minds to think about. What should Adam and and Eve have done after they sinned? Well, the, the answer is they should have prayed to God. They should have called on Him. They should have said something like, Lord, we have sinned. We have done what was wrong. We ate the forbidden fruit. We ate the fruit you told us we're not supposed to eat. Please help us. We have done what was wrong. But they didn't do that. They focused on the new need they had for their bodies to be covered. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Other translations of the Bible use a word like loincloths or or breaches in older translations to give the sense that they knew that there were parts of their bodies that should be covered. That could Those fig leaf coverings could cover a part of their bodies, but they couldn't cover their sins. Nor could they take their sins away. People are doing the same kind of thing today. Not with fig leaves, to be sure, but with trying not to feel guilty by focusing on other things, the busyness of work, trying to do enough good to squelch their consciences. Or some people go full speed ahead in the ways of sin so that excitement and pleasure may may drown out the voice of their conscience. And they may be more or less successful in that. 
to speak to such people about the problem of sin and the reason for the guilt and the trouble in their lives is a sure way to make them very angry. If people are acting in that way, and if, if you have such people in your lives, if you're looking for a way to share the gospel with them, you could use the story of Adam and Eve and their pathetic fig leaf loincloths as a way to start the story. Sometimes the perspective of another person can shed fresh light on a story with which we're very familiar. I remember a student who traveled to Grand Rapids from Zimbabwe in Africa, and he arrived in the middle of the winter. He came from a country where the coldest temperature was 15 degrees above freezing, and he came to a place where it was easily minus 15 at the time. And he spoke in chapel at seminary about Adam and Eve, and it struck him what a flimsy covering fig leaves would be in a Grand Rapids winter. Well, dear ones, it would be infinitely more foolish to live without the covering of Christ's righteousness than it would be to try to attempt to cover yourselves in fig leaves in an average Edmonton winter. God was coming. No God is a spirit. He doesn't have feet that make a noise. Somehow he made a noise that told Adam and Eve that he was coming, that he was on the way. And they heard that noise. They knew that God was coming. And now there was a new dreadful feeling for them to experience. They were afraid. They had eaten the forbidden fruit. God said that they would die on the very day they ate it. And now God was in the garden. And they reacted in, a, in another foolish way. We read of that in verse 9. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just what they were thinking isn't clear here. Perhaps they thought that God wouldn't find them. Perhaps they thought that he might search and go away. Boys and girls, Adam and Eve forgot that God knows everything that happens. He sees everything that happens, even though he doesn't have eyes. He hears everything we say, even though he doesn't have ears. He even knows what we're thinking, even if no one else does. Adam and Eve couldn't hide themselves or their sin from God, and neither can we. God had come into the garden with the purpose of dealing with their sin. He wasn't going to turn around and go away, as it were, because Adam and Eve had hid. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? Adam was created first. He was the leader of this new humanity. He was responsible for what had happened. And that is the reason that God calls Adam first. Why does God ask Adam where he was? God knew where Adam was. He was asking the question because he wanted Adam to face the re reality that he had disobeyed God's command. He had not done what God commanded him to. He was not where he should have been, finishing his, having finished his joyful, pleasant work in the garden for the day, preparing to spend time with God, his creator and friend. God's question was an opportunity for Adam to confess his sin. But Adam focused on the symptoms, not on the disease. Verse 10. So he, that is Adam, said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Besides his guilt over his sin, the shame of his nakedness that flowed from that, 
Now there was fear, too. Before the fall, there was nothing for Adam and Eve to be afraid of. They and the animals ate a vegetarian diet. There was no death. There was no danger posed by anyone or anything until the tempter came and they sinned. Adam's was the first in a series of long answers to short questions. But the Lord wouldn't be deflected or distracted by long answers. Adam said that he was naked, and the Lord follows up on this part of, part of Adam's answer. And he does so in verse 11. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? As I said before, whatever knowledge Adam and Eve had of their nakedness before they sinned, there were no negative emotions of fear or shame connected to it. We're actually told that specifically at the end of chapter 2. They were naked and they were not ashamed. But something had changed. Something irregular and alien had come into the Garden of Eden to change and to disrupt and to overthrow that all that was good and natural and holy. Here was yet another opportunity for Adam to get beyond his surface-level attempts to solve the problem and to engage in deeper analysis of his situation. God asked, Who told you that you were naked? Adam could have answered, My guilty conscience tells me so. I have sinned to be ashamed of. Even my body points out that reality to me. But Adam didn't say this. And now it was time to confront the situation directly. He said, that is God, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? We don't know if the questions came one after the other or if there were long, guilty silences between these two. What is clear is that Adam offers no response to the first question as to the knowledge of his nakedness. But he does answer the second as to whether he ate in verse 12. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. Dear ones, this is among the most wicked and cowardly and evasive answers ever given to a question. This was an opportunity for Adam to answer with, Yes, I did. That's all he had to say. That's all that should have been said. Instead, he blames his wife for his sin. He mentions her first. She is the one who gave him the fruit. And I, I ain't. Instead of being her protective protector, Adam effectively says, Punish her God, not me. He would save himself by pushing the one he was called to love and to protect into the path of the wrath of God in a pathetic attempt to save his own skin. Besides this act of cowardice, and abdication of responsibility, Adam dares to blame God. He says, God is the one who gave the woman to be with him. Effectively, he's saying that he wouldn't have sinned if he didn't have a wife. And ever since then, people have blamed others, bad friends, bad circumstances for their sins. The tendency to excuse oneself and to shift blame to others is a clear part of what it means to have a fallen, sinful human nature. This is the first time that someone responded to an accusation of sin in this way. 
but it certainly has not been the last. Isn't it true that we have been doing the same thing ever since? Adam added sin to sin to sin. If ever a man deserved to die, he did. Yet instead of destroying this accusing, cowardly, defiant rebel where he stood, God turns to Eve, the woman, in verse 13. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Like Adam, Eve was blaming the serpent, someone else, the circumstances. God asked a question, and he also had given Eve the opportunity to confess what she had done. And she did, but she also attempted to lessen her guilt by saying what the serpent had done was worse, or that she wouldn't have done it unless the serpent had deceived her. Though Adam and Eve said more than they should have, God's purpose in this conversation to get them to confess that they have disobeyed was accomplished. Indeed, they confessed that they had broken his law. And it's likely that the Lord proceeded in this way to demonstrate as clearly as possible that he was acting justly in imposing consequences upon them for their sin. The facts have been determined. The accused have admitted their guilt. And God, the all-knowing judge, will now pronounce sentence upon them. God won't speak with the serpent, nor will he permit the devil to speak. The Lord's, Lord begins the sentencing phase of this trial by cursing the serpent. Before it had been blessed along with the rest of creation, but now it would be cursed more than all animals. The serpent would go on its belly and eat dust all the days of its life. And that raises questions the Bible doesn't answer as to whether the serpent moved differently and ate different food before the fall. Even in the middle of this disorder and sin and gloom, the gospel light breaks through as God turns from the serpent to the devil who used its body. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is speaking about so much more than an intergenerational hatred of snakes here. Earlier he described, earlier I described Adam as a, a rebel against God. We need to understand clearly, dear ones, that when Adam and Eve sinned, they switched from God's side to the devil's side. Adam chose to believe what the devil said and to disbelieve what God said. But God now acts in this promise of verse 15 to disrupt this wicked alliance. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. That is one way in which we can view human history as a battle between good and evil, between God and those who trust in him and the devil and his demons and the people who follow him. And then comes the first prophecy of the defeat of evil and the triumph of good. He shall bruise your head, God says to the devil. We understand much more of this than Adam and Eve did. We know that the defeat of the devil and all evil has been ensured by the life and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is the offspring of the woman, 
Though his heel was bruised or crushed, he also has crushed the head of the serpent. He has ensured that sinners will be taken from the devil's power and made willing servants of the Lord. The war between good and evil is not cyclical or never-ending as a struggle. It had a beginning in the heavenly realms as we saw before. In the Garden of Eden, it became an important battlefield on earth. And yet we see the impact as this battle continues even now. And yet the decisive battle in this war between good and evil has been fought on Calvary. And the way of victory for Jesus was a way that looked like defeat at first. The end of the war between good and evil is not in doubt. The reality of the defeat of evil and the triumph of good will be finished forever when Jesus Christ returns. Victories are being won when sinners are saved. Jesus is winning a victory every time his church gathers to worship him as a foreshadowing of the gathering of the church in the new heavens and the new earth when we will worship perfectly. And we get to share in this victory through faith in Jesus Christ, the triumphant Savior and King. If we were telling the story, we might end it here with good news and triumph. But this is God's story, and we're obliged to tell it His way. God will make it abundantly clear that sin has consequences. God had already given the mandate for men and women to conceive children and for women to bear and to give birth to children. But sin would impact that process. Labor would be painful in a post-fall world. Now the joy of the gift of children comes along with the sorrow and the pain of giving birth. As a result of poor hygiene and the lack of medical technologies, women and children have died in childbirth. Many children have also died in infancy. This was true in Europe in previous centuries, and it's still, albeit to a decreasing extent, in the developing world. And so the joy of childbirth is now mixed with the pain as a reminder of the fall. For some women there may be more difficulties than for others. We need to be really careful here not to make specific applications to particular people and situations that we know about. These things are the general results of what it means to give birth to children after the fall. After the fall, the only perfect marriage wasn't perfect anymore. Eve had been made the means through which Adam sinned. And in his harshness and cowardice, Adam wanted Eve to be punished so that he could escape. He blamed Eve for his sin, and Eve blamed the serpent. The perfect love and fellowship that they had enjoyed was now broken. And now brokenness and sin would impact marriages ever since. God tells Eve, your desire will be for your husband. Alternate translations suggest that this was a desire against the husband. And I believe that if we allow the context of the consequences of, of sin to determine our interpretation, I believe that God is not describing the desire for marital intimacy here. Rather, he's predicting an innate desire for a place of leadership in marriage, a natural unwillingness to submit to and obey her husband. And so a desire to remove all distinctions between men and women in marriage and to think that there can only be equality if men and women are identical 
we need to see such things as unbiblical abuses. And women of God need to reject them, the teaching of this world as to where they can find fulfillment, and to pursue womanhood to the glory of God in the particular place that he's put you, with the particular gifts and the character that he's given you. Let me be as clear as I can that this is not to say that all women need to be the same. It's not a call to uniformity, but it is a call to be distinctive from this world. The last phrase of verse 16 adds to the difficulty of what it means to be married in a post-fall world. And he shall rule over you. Instead of being a servant leader, the one who loves his wife in a way that is truly best for her and gives of himself, one who sacrifices and helps his wife, sacrifices for and helps his wife, now a husband would be sinful in the use of his authority. Fall is the beginning of abuse in marriage of, in its various and ugly forms. The oppression of the weak and the vulnerable. And we need to be clear that this is an evil that brings disrepute on the cause of Christ and gives enemies of biblical gender roles cause to mock God's design for marriage. And it brings God's judgment on the abuser. May God prevent it from ever being said that this church was aware of abuse and failed to do what it should for the good of the victim and for the restoration of the abuser, for the glory of God. It is the devil who is an enslaver. There must be an observable difference between devilish perversions of marriage and the marriage of Christians. Besides the difficulties of marriage, Adam's life would be more difficult after the fall. Work would become harder. It would take effort in order to till the ground and to cultivate crops. God had cursed the ground. Adam would have to labor to work hard to get the ground to yield a crop for him. Work had changed from a joy to toil, to burdensome labor. And then Adam is told that he will die and return to the dust from which his body was shaped. All of this happened because Adam listened to Eve instead of to God. This was one time in which it was sinful for a husband to listen to and to act on the advice of his wife. And Adam did that. And what a bitter harvest he reaped. Though life became more difficult, more painful, more sorrowful, yet life would continue after the fall. Out of thankfulness for the gift of life, and out of hope in God who would grant continued life to the human race, Adam named his wife Eve. And her name in Hebrew is derived from the word for life. Her name was a confession of faith in God's promise that there would be an offspring from Adam through Eve, a trust that God would keep his promise in spite of man's sin. The loincloths they made of fig leaves were inadequate, and they wouldn't be a durable kind of covering. And God made garments of skins to clothe Adam and Eve. We read nothing of what God did with the bodies of any animals that he may have killed to provide that clothing. There's one last forceful provision of grace that we need to see in this chapter. And if you look to verse 22, you'll see that God realized that there was another tree which could have done eternal harm to the human race. And it was the tree of life. In Genesis 2.9, it tells us that this was also a tree in the midst of the garden. 
That's all we know about it. And for good reason, we tend to focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in view of its uh, tremendous and horrible impact. But somehow, if anyone ate from the tree of life, that person was guaranteed to live forever. If Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of life after having eaten the forbidden fruit, they would have guaranteed eternal life of misery for themselves. I believe it's no exaggeration to say that this would have been a hellish existence on earth. And so out of care and concern that this should not result, God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he guarded the way to the tree of life with a cherubim, with cherubim and a flaming sword. We've seen two important realities in our time in God's Word this morning. The first is that this is a fallen world. It has been greatly impacted by the sin of Adam and Eve and our sin in them. This world is not what it ought to be, for we have fallen short of God's glory. But the second thing that we've seen is that this world is not all that there is. This is not a permanent situation. This world and our lives in it here and now are a time and a place in which to prepare for eternity. Those who have repented of their sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the offspring of the woman, are now at war with the serpent and his offspring. Though this story has a dreadful beginning, the story for those who are in Christ is the only one that ends and they lived happily ever after. If you're on the other side, you must know that you're on the losing side and you are under the curse and wrath of God. And the end for those people and the offspring of the serpent will be terrible beyond imagining. But God is giving you proof in his preached word today that there is still time to switch sides. Don't be like Adam with his lies and pathetic attempts at shifting blame. God knows the truth, and he wants to hear it from you. And if you do, if you tell him the truth, you confess your sins, and you ask him to forgive you for Jesus' sake, that's the way that this story of triumph can be really good news for you too. Amen.